The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Maintaining Intensity for Better Outcomes in AML, Guidance on Modern, Intensive Upfront Platforms in Challenging Patient Populations. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash BMM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to the online and virtual participants. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here and to have um, everybody join us for the symposium this morning, which is called Maintaining Intensity. And we put it in quotes deliberately because actually what is intensity? Talk about that a little bit. But Maintaining Intensity for Better Outcomes in AML, Guidance on Modern Intensive Upfront Platforms in Challenging Patient Populations. My name is Gail Robos. I'm a professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine and the New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. It is my total pleasure to be joined by two great friends and colleagues. I have next to me Tapan Kadia, from a professor at the University of um, Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Harry Erba from Duke Cancer Center. Welcome, everybody. We have worked hard together on the program, and we hope that um, you will find it very engaging. And now to get started, um, we want to talk about uh, mapping optimal treatment pathways and using diagnostic and prognostic information. And today, what we're going to try to do today is use um, uh, cases, because I think everybody remembers everything better when there's a case. So this is a clinical consult discussions to first characterize the um, challenging AML subtypes and the age-old question of how to determine fitness for intensive therapy and defining what intensive therapy actually is. And then to get to personalization or how to choose a personalized platform based on the current um, evidence and with your cases and um, questions and answers throughout. So just a little bit, you are in an AML session, just in case you wandered in here by accident. So one second on AML or acute myeloid leukemia, here are some serious statistics. So I don't think any of us on the podium find this to be a rare disease. We actually find it um, pretty overwhelming on the inpatient services. But this is um, still um, orders of magnitude less with respect to um, incidence and prevalence than other cancers. You can see 20,000 or so cases with, unfortunately, if you look at the estimated deaths being many. So a lot of these patients, unfortunately, still die from the disease, and the overall survival at five years is still running around um, 30%. So AML is dangerous. The uh, overall survival of the disease that I showed you in SEER, I wanted to, since we have a colleague from MD Anderson here, to show um, what's, what's happening in the land of Houston where um, only one of us gets to work. But if you look here at um, the overall survival um, over five decades, so this is going all the way backwards to the 70s and now to, um, to uh, ending in about 2020, we are doing better. And you can see that on the, um, for the younger patients on the left side, There are actually, if you look at that upper curve, I mean, that's kind of getting to five years for kind of almost getting to 60% of patients. These are selected patients, um, and it is MD Anderson data, and um, uh, again, those are selected populations, but things are better. The patients um, who are over 60, who obviously do represent the majority of AML patients, the curves are better, but they're still the five-year survival overall is not at all where um, where we want it to be. 
Okay, so I get asked at ASH in particular, but throughout the year, everybody, and especially the investors, ask, what's the best target? What's the target? What's the target in AML? And I made this slide originally a lot of years ago, and I have shifted a little bit some of the targets on it. And some of those targets are actually um, FDA approved already. And you can see on the right, the approvals in AML. When I first made this slide, which is a long time ago now, I was looking backwards, um, these were all theoretical targets, with CD33 really being the only one that, um, that had a uh, medication at the time in gemtuzumab. But AML has a lot of targets, and the main issue here for this slide is to answer the question by saying there are multiple targets in AML. And you will see throughout ASH, there are multiple different ways of targeting these targets. There are immunotherapies, there are um, molecularly targeted agents, but the problem is that most patients with AML that we have in clinic have many of these things going on at the same time. So it's complicated, and part of the personalization that we discuss, for example, in this meeting, is how to take all of these drugs and the new ones and potentially put them together either simultaneously or in appropriate sequences. You can see here that we have um, FLT3 targeted agents that are several now available, IDH targeted um, agents, most recently a new IDH1, olosudinib, which just was approved. How do you pick these? How do you sequence them? All very hard questions. So this was actually interesting. This is um, currently at this ASH. Um, colleagues from the FDA actually tried to take a look at a retrospective study looking at um, the EMR, electronic health data, which I think the real world data are emerging at many of the recent ASH meetings as particularly helpful to looking at um, a couple of thousand patients um, in the United States between 2013 and 2021. And when we used to present slides like this um, years ago, it was a very nihilistic presentation actually for the older patients that many of them weren't getting any therapy at all. And that was the whole point of the slide was to say that some patients over 60 and over 70 and forgetting over 80 and 90 were not even getting therapy at all. Here, what you can see is that the predominant first-line treatment is still cytarabine-based chemotherapy, which makes sense even though the cytarabine-based regimens are older ones. Those are the ones that have been around for, for 50 years and helping people. 25% received a single-agent AMA, uh, HMA, hypomethylating agent, or no treatment. And even though it's, it seems like a lot, it's still a quarter of these patients didn't get effective therapy. Um, but the proportion of patients receiving a combination of a hypomethylating agent and venetoclax, that combination has revolutionized really the treatment of older patients and really put response rates on the map, making it worthwhile to treat older patients because they get into remission and have better survival. That is increasing since 2018. So I would say it is still a concerning distribution perhaps on the slide that there are lots of patients who are getting single agent therapy or no therapy. I, as a clinical trialist, was particularly concerned by the very low proportion of patients getting investigational therapies for AML. Basically, everybody should be on a clinical trial for AML, but it's not feasible, of course, to do that. But I think this is an interesting look, and it's probably worth it to look at the um, rest of the presentation. So my answer that annoys everybody is that the best target is cure, not um, you, you can't, you can put your $100 billion onto one target or another, but how do we actually cure the disease? And I am still under the impression that a single target is not going to be good enough. So there are going to be two cases that we are focusing on. One of them is going to be a patient with secondary AML. This is a 70-year-old who's going to end up having a complex karyotype and um, that is appearing to con uh, confirm AML-MR 
hmm, what is that? That sounds new, I'm going to tell you in a minute. And then the second one is a FLIP3 mutated patient, a 68-year-old. We always pick 68-year-old, right? Because a 68-year-old, older, younger, middle, sorry to all the 68-year-olds in the room, but 68 is picked for that reason because you're neither fit nor unfit or old or young just by age. And this patient has FLIP3 ITD, NPM1, and DNMT3 mutations, again, emphasizing that combo pack of targets that we usually have in real-life patients. Okay, so we have three new classifications for AML that just came out in the last few months. And I want to level set a little bit that if you're going to try to cure a patient, it is useful to know what the patient actually has. And you have to correctly risk stratify and understand what the patient has, both to pick a regimen and also conceivably to pick a clinical trial. If you look at this, um, they're all three, and this is the ELN first, um, the, the new consensus criteria are driven by the better understanding in the last several years of the biology of AML. So you can see in the blue squares on the top that you have things like AML defining recurrent genetic abnormalities, TP53 is kind of in a class by itself. You have uh, characteristic mutations that are associated with both myelodysplasia and acute myeloid leukemia, karyotypic abnormalities, and then this classification has an AML not otherwise specified. Take a note of that because um, one of the other ones does not. What is interesting to note here and what's important to think about is that there is, we have all been frustrated, I think we all know both academically and in clinic, that really 19% blasts, I need 20. I need it to be AML because I need to either get a regimen approved by a payer or I need to put the patient on a clinical trial. We don't really Ha like these harsh cutoffs of blast count, and yet you gotta have a cutoff somewhere. So what this classification did was put it together as MDS slash AML. So for example, if you have a mutant TP50, uh, TP53 patient, in this case with a VAF a VAF specification of more than 10%, so note to self, not all TP53 mutations are the same. They don't all mean the same thing, and the amount that is present is relevant. In this case, if you're over 10% and you have 12% blasts, you have MDS slash AML. Good luck explaining to your patient that they have a disease with a slash in it. That is not an easy thing to explain, and it's, it's worthwhile to consider as we move through the rest of the talk. The other thing is that we have now diagnostic qualifiers, therapy-related prior MDS um, or uh, MPN or germline predisposition is actually called a qualifier now rather than a um, classification subtype. Now, if you look over here, the red shows the changes in the ELN risk categories. You have to kind of spend time to digest this, but a couple of things. You'll notice, for example, that the mutated NPM1 without a FLT3 is in the favorable category, but FLT3, mutated NPM1 with FLT3, wild-type NPM1 with FLT3 is now intermediate. Most people have it in their mind FLT3, aggressive disease, adverse. This doesn't tell you how long patients are gonna live or what to do with them necessarily, but it's important to realize that the classification has um, changed in this way. It also is worth it to note there are subtleties here. So when you get your cytogenetics report, you really have to look and see, are you sure you don't have something that is now classified as adverse? And you'll also see that there are MDS-related re mutational abnormalities that are now specified rather than intuited as um, um, as adverse, they're actually specified over here. 
There is another one, the International Consensus Classification, or ICC. Now, in this one, it is pretty similar to um, the uh, ELM. These are pretty closely aligned. You have recognition of the myeloid neoplasms with the TP53. You've got this use or of 10 or 20% thresholds to diagnose AML with specific gen uh, genetic signatures. In other words, for example, you can have um, AML if you have an NPM1 mutation, and we'll talk about that in the next classification as well. There are certain uh, predisposition syndromes that are defining and certain mutational abnormalities that are uh, defining. Here, instead of MDS-EB2, just to get, so we've gone from, you know, RAEB to MDS-EB2, now it's MDS slash AML. Again, that blurred zone between 10 and 20%. There are disease classifiers, as I mentioned, something like NPM1, but also MDS-related gene mutations are now actually in this schema. And your history of chemotherapy and radiation is now a qualifying statement. But wait, there's more. There's WHO. And I'll call your attention, actually, that in ASH this year, there is a presentation that asks the question, it's kind of a funny title, have we created a Babylonian confusion? It's pretty hard to have three slightly different classifications, but if you look at WHO, the key here is that WHO actually made the decision to keep the 20%, and they wrote a whole little article about it, but they soften, this is a quote, the boundary between MDS and AML is softened, and the 20% is the cutoff, but there's broad agreement that the um, IB2 may be regarded as an AML equivalent. We'll talk about that as we go through the cases. Secondary AML is a difficult area because these patients are historically difficult to, um, to treat. Secondary AML can be because you have an antecedent neoplasm, you can have myelodysplasia-related changes, or you can have prior cytotoxic chemotherapy and radiation. Here you have AML-MR, so not MRC, it's now MR. So if you look over here, the AML-MR is replacing the AML with myelodysplasia-related changes, just so that you get used to seeing AML-MR. And this does require uh, more than 20% blast with a myeloid phenotype and uh, harboring, again, specific cytogenetic and molecular abnormalities that are associated with MDS. So lots of things to think about with all of these that were published very recently and um, kind of together. I want to just pause for one second and talk about the, um, the classification just with you guys. What was your reaction to these coming out and how do you intend to, how do you intend to deal with this and which one are you using? Yeah, it's very, I mean, you know, very similar to what you said. I think it, it, it gets confusing for the patients. To be frank, I mean, in, in practice, we often, you know, treat in this way where people who have 17 to 19% blast, well, these guys are AML. We sort of categorize them, treat them as we would in acute myeloid leukemia. Now, some of the clinical trials may not allow those people on, so we'll maybe treat them off protocol. But I think certainly defining these by genomics, by mutations, is probably going to be the future and probably the better way to treat these folks. Yeah, I agree. I, I think uh, defining these biologically is much more important than an absolute blast cutoff. And MD Anderson actually led the way in including these high-grade MDS patients in their AML trials. So uh, they were ahead of the curve um, as that goes. There, there are still some deficiencies here, um, but I think the, the important part for the patient and the selection of therapy is how are these new uh, diagnoses going to impact on payers' willingness to pay for uh, drugs and agents that have been approved based on prior you know, uh, nomenclature. So um, AML-MRC is it's gone. 
So it's AML-MR. Is that okay to use? And is it okay now to use those eight mutations to say a patient might be eligible for uh, CPX351 because they have secondary type uh, mutations? I personally think that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think these issues, though, I mean, this is really not, you know, classification systems are not typically sort of the most exciting way to perhaps begin a day. But I have to say that here it's really, really relevant because it's paying for the regimens. But it's also, I have to say, um, I think that there is an impression somehow that the diseases are now all the same. And I would say clinically that's not true either. There are patients who are behaving in a more cytopenic MDS kind of way who you still may treat very differently from somebody who has a proliferative classic type of, um, of leukemia. So I think these are important. And I would also just say on the clinical front that all of you who are clinicians are going to have the patient come into the office that I had this week hysterical that their other doctor had misdiagnosed them with MDS when they have AML or the other way around that they told me I had AML, but I don't really have that. I only have MDS. And those are hard conversations. Well, thanks a lot, Gail, and uh, thank you all for being here so early this morning. So today I'm going to talk about intensifying chemotherapy in patients with newly diagnosed AML. Uh, we, we, we talk about intensive chemotherapy. We've been using it for many years. There's been a push lately with the use, and rightfully so, of lower-intensity therapy, more use of lower-intensity therapy in older adults, particularly uh, those who are unfit, potentially even in some younger adults. Uh, but there are still uh, areas, and there's still a strong role for using intensive chemotherapy in many subtypes of AML, uh, AML that can be cured with intensive chemotherapy alone. And so uh, rumors of the demise of intensive chemotherapy may have been slightly exaggerated. So we'll get into that a little bit here. So the first question we often get, uh, and this is, this, there's no real good way to answer this, uh, is how do we determine whether patients are good candidates for intensive chemotherapy? Is it age? Is it comorbidities? Is it patient-related factors? Do we use cognitive testing? There's something called a get-up-and-go test. How is it the best way to determine whether a patient is going to be eligible for intensive chemotherapy? The way we approach it is that it's not just the patient-related factors. It's not just the patient's values, their, their tolerance for chemotherapy, whether they're willing to be in the hospital uh, for m weeks or months at a time whether they're uh, willing to take the risk for early, uh, early mortality, whether they want longer-term therapy, whether or not you're going to send an LJ stem cell transplant, but the disease also matters, right? So the disease-related factors, the biology of the disease makes a difference. Is this someone with core binding factor AML who has very sensitive disease? So even if they're older, potentially slightly unfit, can we deliver a form of intensive chemotherapy dose-modified with the potential to cure that patient? Alternatively, is this a person with complex karyotype P53 mutated AML, which is very resistant, recalcitrant chemotherapy, where even if you give intensive chemo or low-intensity therapy, the outcomes may be very similar, but the mortality and toxicity will be much higher. In that situation, even a person in their 50s, you may say, well, look, let's, let's consider a lower-intensity-based approach, try to get the best response, and try to get to transplant. So I think both biology and patient-related comorbidities matter. And so we developed a model uh, just recently looking at, at MD Anderson, looking at the prediction of four-week mortality with intensive chemotherapy, and we took all factors, patient-related factors, dynamic factors of the patient at the time that you're seeing them. What is their performance status? Do they have active infection? And specifically, in this case, we actually boiled it down to, do they have an infiltrate on a CT of the chest at admission? Do they have active pneumonia? What is their performance status? What is their organ function? Putting all these together, we came up with a model that helps predict four-week mortality. You can see on the left, we have age, performance status, uh, organ function, including bilirubin, creatinine, uh, and, and uric acid. Turns out tumor lysis, or active 
Spontaneous tumor lysis tends to be a strong factor that predicts early mortality, and then disease-related factors, so chromosome abnormalities. We're going to start now incorporating uh, the next-gen sequencing as well in our next model, but chromosome abnormalities, di diploid and core binding factor versus those who have complex karyotype, monosomal karyotype, and then infectious diagnosis. So we put these factors together, develop a model, each with a different weight, that allows us to tell the patient and their families, look, your predicted early mortality with intensive chemotherapy, cytarabine anthracycline base is going to be X. You know, we feel that you may actually be benefit better from, in, from lower intensity therapy, and this is what you think you should choose. But this is one way uh, where we can sort of select patients and actually allow the patients to participate in their care uh, and allow us to determine what, uh, what, what is a good patient for intensive chemotherapy. So let's look at this, uh, the, the case uh, that we have today. Uh, like, like Gail said, it's really nice to have a case to sort of focus our attention uh, to a specific problem. Um, so Matthew is a 70-year-old gentleman who was relatively fit, who presents with weeks of worsening fatigue. So this has been going on for weeks. And then he said, you know, if you talk to him some more, he said, you know, doc, I've been feeling fatigue for probably about a year. Uh, my doctor tells me I have this low-grade anemia. They did a colonoscopy. They didn't find anything. You know, my hemoglobins are on 10 or 11. He has shortness of breath, worsening shortness of breath, exertion. He can't exercise as much as he used to. He starts noticing some bruising. His PCP immediately sends him over to, uh, to the hematologist, and blood work confirms pancytopenia. His performance status is actually still very good. He's very active. He just retired, but he's still working full-time uh, on his side business, so he's still very active, plays sports. He has no major comorbidities, a long-standing history of this low-grade anemia. Would this patient potentially have had a prior MDS, some um, uh, myeloid disorder that now has progressed, and indeed, uh, when you look at his CBC, he's pancytopenic, he has 20% circulating blasts, and a bone marrow confirms that he has acute myeloid leukemia with dysplastic changes. 62% uh, blasts with the with myeloid uh, 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 surface markers and MPO positive. His karyotype complex, okay, minus 5Q, trisomy 8, 12P deleted. So these are some of the, 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 the chromosomes that Gale outlined, which are MDS-defining. Uh, karyotype, which can help define um, now AML-MR or AML-MRC, uh, AML arising from a prior myelodysplastic syndrome. He has next-gen sequencing with mutations in ASXL1, SRSF2, TET2, uh, very sort of suspicious for potentially a prior monocytic disorder, maybe at CMML for years, which now progressed to acute myeloid leukemia. You can see the, the past history there. He's fatigued, he's tachycardic. His organ function is not bad, right? It's creatinine, uh, echocardiogram, total bilirubin are within adequate limits. And so now we diagnose him with AML-MR, AML arising likely from a myelodysplastic syndrome or dysplasia. Uh, what are the prognostic implications, right? So we'll, we'll get into this, and, and, and some of this was already described by Gail, but someone potentially who has a more adverse prognosis than someone uh, with de novo AML, for example, without the, the, the mutations or the karyotype abnormalities, does this help guide therapy? Sure it does. You'll notice, although his karyotype is complex, one of the things that's not in his karyotype is a 17P deletion. And in his NGS sequencing, the lack of a P53 mutation. Why are those important? Those often predict for inactivation or dysfunction of P53, which also predicts for significant resistance to chemotherapy, short overall survival, short relapse survival. So is this someone who maybe we can potentially use intensive chemotherapy or where we would be willing to use intensive chemotherapy? Is he a candidate for intensive therapy? Well, so far, on the surface, he seems to be, right? He's young, uh, youngish. Um, he has no comorbidities. He's relatively fit, and he wants, he's motivated. He wants to get intensive chemotherapy. He says, doctor, I want you to do the, 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 you know, the best that you can. I want to go to transplant. I want to survive this thing. I've got a family. I've got a business. Uh, I want to keep going. 
Uh, and what assessments can help complete the picture? Well, we could maybe look for infections. Uh, we would do a cascade of the chest at MD Anderson. Uh, but other than that, he's pretty much had a pretty good overall assessment. So we discuss these adverse prognoses with the patient and his family. We, we, we kind of outline what our expectations are for cure. In a person like this with AMLMR, we know that the cure rate's going to be low, uh, potentially augmented by the, the use of allogenic stem cell transplantation, and the goals of care. Are we going to get you to transplant? Are we going to try to instead convert you to maintenance therapy and, and, and move to sort of life prolongation instead of cure? All right, so how can we improve the chemotherapy, the intensive chemotherapy that we have so far? And I want to talk a little bit about incorporating venetoclax uh, into intensive chemotherapy. We've heard a lot about using venetoclax with low-intensity therapy, with low-dose cytarabine, with HMA. Uh, has revolutionized uh, the treatment of, uh, for patients who are older and unfit with, uh, with, uh, with newly diagnosed AML. But can we safely add venetoclax to intensive chemotherapy? And why would we do that? Is, does this benefit any patients? And I'm going to give you a little summary of what we found so far. All right, so let's review why we use intensive chemotherapy, right? So we have, over the years, tried to uh, optimize intensive chemotherapy. The standard backbone, 7 and 3, has led to excellent rates of response, but still suboptimal. Can we improve on those? Several people have tried. You can see a few studies listed there. The DAC is the Polish group, the PALG, adding cladribine to 7 plus 3, uh, intensifying the cytarabine during induction, particularly in younger patients, using the FIA regimen of fluid, fludarabine, idorubicin, hydrocytarabine, uh, what about fludarabine, idrosin, hydrocytarabine, plus GO, what the Italians did to further intensify chemotherapy, and then the flag item by the UK MRC. You can see there um, <clears throat> remission rates in the range of 60 to 80 percent, uh, with long-term overall survival uh, at two years, about 60 percent, 50 to 60 percent, with this sort of standard intensive chemotherapy with augmentation. The goal being higher rates of remission, higher rates of MRD remission, more patients getting to allogenic stem cell transplant to achieve cure in these patient population. So this is as our background to the baseline, can we improve on this? So one of the things several groups have done, including ourselves, is the addition of venetoclax to these intensive regimens. Now we cannot add venetoclax to intensive chemotherapy just as we do with lower intensity therapy. The current label for venetoclax gives 28 days of venetoclax with HMA, low intensity therapy, or lotocytarabine. We knew right away that there will be an increased myelosuppression, and so we backed down on the number of days of, of, of venetoclax with Flagida and CLIA in the intensive regimen for younger patients. And, and then 5 plus 2 plus venetoclax in older patients done by uh, the Australian group. <clears throat> and what we found is that indeed uh, the long-term survival, at least in a single-arm study, uh, showed improvement compared to historical controls. We saw high rates of composite CR, 90 to 94 percent composite CR, and very high rates of MRD negativity by flow cytometry at the time of response. 85 to 95 percent MRD negative at the time of remission or throughout any time during the study. So the highest rates of MRD negative that we have achieved with intensive chemotherapy. So now we're starting to um, uh, get to the point where we're, we're trying to achieve what, we had, what our goal was, is to achieve higher rates of remission, lower rates of MRD, and can we get more of these patients to allogenic stem cell transplant? You can see here the rates that patients go to allogenic stem cell transplant, anywhere from 60 to 70% of patients on these studies are now getting to allogenic stem cell transplant. And so the obvious question is, well, this is great. That was a single-arm study. How does this compare to our historical controls? And so we did that. We went back retrospectively, of course, uh, which with all the caveats and the biases included in that, of 194 patients that we treated at MD Anderson with either CLIA or FIA compared to those same, uh, the same institution, CLIA or FIA combined with venetoclax. And the things that we noticed, <coughs> the things that we learned is, again, with this retrospective analysis, significantly higher rates of complete remission, significantly higher rates of MRD negative remission, uh, and uh, actually significantly lower rates of early mortality and higher rates of transplantation. 
Now on the right, you'll see those bar graphs. And what we see the bar graphs is, sure, there's improved outcomes in, 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 in all the subgroups by ELN 2017. Patients with favorable risk did better, those with ELN intermediate, and those with adverse. But what you, what you really notice is that the biggest benefit, the largest benefit that we saw are those patients who had adverse risk ELN. The same patients who have uh, either complex karyotype, adverse karyotype, secondary type mutations, those patients who fall into ELN adverse risk. That's where we saw the biggest benefit. Because presumably those patients who were favorable, who had sensitive disease to begin with, who were sensitive to intensive chemotherapy, were maybe a little bit more sensitive to the addition of venetoclax, but the biggest benefit in complete remission we saw were these patients with adverse uh, outcomes or adverse uh, prognosis. And here you can see higher rates of uh, allogeneic stem cell transplantation, uh, that's the VEN plus intensive chemotherapy in the red, and lower rates of early mortality and long-term death, mostly because of lower rates of disease relapse. Um, uh, and this was uh, present across all subgroups by ELN 2017 classification, whether they were favorable, intermediate, or adverse risk. Uh, and more patients, you can see here, 72% of patients uh, went to allogeneic stem cell transplantation compared to around 60% from our same institution, same physicians, treating these patients because we were able to get higher rates of remission and higher rates of MRD negativity. How do these patients do? You can see on the left, uh, EFS, and on the right, overall survival. Among those who had intermediate and adverse risk, among the patients who had intermediate and adverse risk, there was a significant improvement uh, in overall and event-free survival, uh, again, in a, in a retrospective analysis. And among those patients who achieved MRD negativity, you'll see that those patients did remarkably well with a three, two to three-year to three survival of 70% long-term survival, and clearly transplant benefited these patients with a, with a, a long-term uh, plateau uh, at, at about 70% at two and three years with the use of allergenic stem cell transplantation compared to those who did not receive transplant. So the addition of venetoclax, what we found, improved rates of remission, higher rates of MRD negativity, more patients to allergenic stem cell transplantation, a particular benefit among those patients who had intermediate and adverse ELN risk uh, and potentially higher cure rates in that population. Now with the advent of these new drugs, including venetoclax, the next question is, well, do we really need all that intensive chemotherapy? Do we need you know, 1.5 grams of cytarabine and 8 to 10 milligrams per meter squared uh, of idorubicin or anthracycline? Can we intensify using some of the newer agents and sort of backing down the doses of chemotherapy? And so we investigated this in a, in a, in a lower-intensity backbone, different from HMA, what we refer to as the cladribine lotoserus C plus venetoclax or the cladeldac venetoclax, where the, the, the backbone is actually just cladribine for five days and lotocytarabine sub-Q, 20 milligrams twice daily for 10 days. So a lower-intensity approach with the addition of venetoclax. Can venetoclax augment this backbone the way it augmented uh, hyper, uh, HMA and, and, and lotocytarabine in patients who are older than age 60? And so we use this uh, regimen in our 60 and older patients. You can see here the composite complete remission rate, 93% in a single arm phase two study with 60 patients. Uh, CR rate, complete CR rate with count recovery of 80%, and interestingly, MRD negative rate of 84%, unheard of in an, in an older population with lower intensity therapy. So now we're achieving rates similar to what we achieve with intensive chemotherapy with a regimen that's a little bit lower. Can we start incorporating this into some of our, uh, some of our sort of borderline patients, those who are 50 or 55, those people who you're not really excited about giving anthracyclines and intensive chemotherapy to? And so this is a way to intensify lower intensity backbones uh, to achieve the, 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 the goals that we uh, put forth earlier, which is higher remission rates and lower rates of MRD uh, positive disease. And when we looked at the subgroups, we saw responses throughout the different subgroups that were um, um, uh, classified by either ELN risk, 
uh, by whether I had de novo or secondary AML, which is the second column, those who had various chromosome abnormalities, as well as those who had um, 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 various mutations that, that we selected. So really, responses throughout the subgroups, again, single-arm study, 60 patients, where this needs to be uh, certainly um, uh, studied further, uh, but an interesting uh, paradigm where we're now using the newer therapies to intensify therapy without actually increasing the doses of the chemotherapy, so another way of intensifying. And this is just a summary of the outcomes of the regimen, as historically we went from IA, adding CLIA, CLIA venetoclax, and now the cladribine lotus ARC venetoclax, you can see that the remission rates and MRD negativity rates, albeit different populations, are not very different, suggesting that potentially we could start using these regimens uh, a little bit earlier. Okay, what about intensive chemotherapy in secondary acute myeloid leukemia, which is our patient? 70-year-old gentleman, secondary AML, can we apply intensive chemotherapy? Is there, intensive chemo is there data uh, that, 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 that shows that intensive chemotherapy is active? I think before we get into that, I think some of the, what, what Gail describes is that AML-MRC, or now AML-MR, is, is not one specific beast. We went back a few years ago and looked at AML-MRC, and, you know, back then it was, you know, anyone who had evidence of dysplasia in their bone marrow, anyone who had history of MDS but was not treated, who had prior MDS, who had prior HMA and then was treated with AML, as well as those people who had AM, MDS with cytogenetic abnormalities. All these were lumped together in AML-MRC and say, you know, have at it. And we recognized that these were not the same patients, right? There were people who had MDS with history but didn't have dysplasia or cytogenic abnormalities, they just had history of MDS. Those patients we know did different than those patients, for example, who had treated secondary MDS. So they had MDS for 16 months, they were treated with HMA for a year, and then they developed AML. Well, now you have newly diagnosed AML, but do they really have newly diagnosed disease? This is a person who's had a year of chemotherapy, and now you're gonna say you have newly diagnosed AML. Obviously, their response rates, their toxicity, their early mortality is gonna be different than a person who has not had therapy. And so we went back and looked at this, and we classified it back then by AML, MRCM, CH, and TS, and I'll, I'll show you the outcomes. And indeed, what we found is that they are different, right? Those people who had AML, uh, uh, MDS with just dysplastic changes, just by morphology, and those who had just history of MDS but none of the other things did actually much better as you would expect in those patients who had MDS with cytogenetic related changes or MDS who were treated second and who had prior HMA. So in your, in your minds, not every patient who has secondary AML should be considered the same. There are those who have you know, certain mutations, and as, as, as Harry pointed out, their biology is different. It's different than, and, then, and it's based on their genomics, it's based on their prior treatment and prior history. And so these need to be distinguished as we choose our therapies for our patients and as, the, and as we give them expectations of what to expect going forward. Okay, and so you can see here, even by response, by intensive chemotherapy, which is the last line, you can see that the highest response rates were among those who had uh, AML, MRC by uh, morphology and history, and the lower response rates uh, with intensive chemotherapy were those with cytogenetics, and particularly those with treated secondary AML. So those are, in my mind, a completely separate disease uh, that should not be lumped together uh, into the AML, MR uh, uh, subgroup uh, at this point. Uh, we use other things like low-intensity uh, backbones in, in these patients who have treated secondary AML. You can see intensive chemotherapy performs really inferiorly. Uh, it's at the blue curve, yeah, but uh, low-intensity therapy with venetoclax seems to offer some benefit. Uh, but I think the biggest uh, advance, at least in secondary AML, uh, has been the, the development of CPX351 uh, based on a randomized phase 3 trial 
which we'll get into in just a minute. But uh, just to remind everyone, CPX351 is a liposome uh, that uh, has the combination of both donorubicin and cytarabine within it at a specific 5 to 1 molar ratio, which is synergistic. And these liposomes presumably allow concentration uh, of the drug within the leukemia cells, within the bone marrow, and potentially avoid many of the extramedullary toxicities that we may see, uh, less hair loss, less mucositis, less GI toxicity. Um, the, phase one the phase three trial after phase one and phase two uh, uh, demonstrated some, some response was in, in patients who are 60 to 75 years of age with either therapy-related or secondary AML and who are able to tolerate intensive chemotherapy with adequate performance status. They were randomized to CPX351 or 7 and 3. Uh, and as you know, you've, you've seen these data before. Uh, they had uh, significantly higher rates of complete remission, uh, higher rates of patients going to allogeneic stem cell transplant, and uh, they had lower early mortality, both at four and eight weeks, uh, suggesting better outcomes with this. And this, again, led to a uh, significant improvement in overall survival compared to 7 plus 3. And this is the recent five-year uh, follow-up of the, of the randomized phase 2 trial, uh, demonstrating uh, that the, the, the survival benefit holds, and we're seeing a plateau around 25 <coughs> to 30 percent with CPX351 in a high-risk population of patients with secondary acute myeloid leukemia. What's very interesting is another analysis done among those patients who had uh, a transplant uh, in this population, whether you had 7 and 3 or CPX351, if you, achieved, if you had a transplant at the time of achieving CR, you can see the, the survival at the time uh, or after the time of allogeneic stem cell transplant significantly better uh, with CPX351 and 7 plus 3. So what does that tell you? So we're thinking two things. Does CPX351 lead to deeper responses? Is that why they're living longer even after transplant, fewer relapses? Does CPX351 leave you in better shape? Is there less toxicity? And so you get 7 and 3, you get toxicity, you get transplant, potentially you may die from some of that toxicity. And that, some of that still needs to be fleshed out. But certainly, it may be probably a combination of both, maybe deeper responses that are tolerated so you do better after allogeneic stem cell transplant. I found this data very interesting. Um, when you look at the subgroup analysis, and this gets back to my treated secondary point that I made earlier, you can see that there's benefit across the board, uh, whether you're 60 years of age, 70 to 75 years of age, therapy-related, uh, prior CMML, by your cytogenetics. The one area, and that's the arrow, where you'd see that maybe CPX is not so great or there was sort of not a clear benefit are among those patients who had this prior HMA exposure, these treated secondary AMLs who have, you know, still, you know, a very difficult journey uh, and are almost uh, responding the way uh, you would see potentially in a relapse refractory setting. Next here, we have uh, the benefit among those patients who see stem cell transplant. Now you see that there is a shift in, among all the subgroups, including those who had uh, prior HMA. And so clearly, if you have a treated secondary AML, if you can get them into remission and they get them to allogenic stem cell transplantation, you may then see a nice benefit with the use of CPX351 in that group. These are patients who had CPX351 and 7.3 on the same study who did not achieve or receive allergenic stem cell transplantation. And what you see here uh, is that there is a trend for improvement overall survival. Uh, these are not significant, but certainly uh, a very nice outcome. Uh, and certainly want to be on the purple curve here uh, rather than the, the yellow curve. Okay, so where would you want to avoid uh, intensive chemotherapy? We talked about several groups, sort of the favorable risk groups. Uh, Harry's going to talk about the FLT3. Um, we talked about potential secondary AML. Are there specific subgroups where we tend to avoid intensive chemotherapy? And I think certainly one of the things I alluded to earlier, those patients who have P53 mutations, complex carry type, or we now like to say a, a double hit on the P53, that is to say one patient who has loss of heterozygosity on chromosome 17, like a 17P deletion or monosomy 17, 
and then another p53 mutation or bodily p53 inactivation. These people tend to do very poorly. Those patients who have high VAF, uh, greater than 40%, do not benefit from intensive chemotherapy, as you can see on the left. We may still use uh, intensive therapy in those patients who have a low VAF p53. It may be potentially subclonal, and they may still respond. But again, on the right, we also looked at where the, whether the addition of venetoclax to either low or high-intensity therapy benefited patients. You can see the curves there uh, clearly overlapping in patients who have uh, p53-mutated AML. Um, uh, what about C CPX351? Again, no significant difference between that and 7 and 3 among those patients who had p53-mutated AML, an analysis done a couple of years ago uh, and presented at ASH. Uh, so again, a, a difficult population. Um, Another one, uh, those patients who have MECOM rearrangement. You've seen these patients, uh, not very common, but also can be therapy-related or secondary. Uh, those with inversion 3 uh, or translocation 3.3, uh, where you can see here, in fact, the low-intensity therapy folks tend to do better, associated with lower early mortality. Uh, again, not a great survival, but again, maybe not a role for intensive chemotherapy in that particular population. Um, very nice uh, data uh, um, presented here at ASH uh, in previous years. Uh, and recently published uh, by, the, uh, by the Penn Group. And then there's a third study, I'll show you an abstract uh, from the Moffitt Group, looking at uh, CPX351 now versus HMA event, which has now been the new standard of care for older and unfit patients. How do they look compared to each other? And you can see that maybe the outcomes are, are fairly similar uh, between Veneza and CPX351, but it tends to, do, it tends to have to do with the, the ability to get that patient to allogeneic stem cell transplant. So in both of these studies, uh, what they found is that those patients who went or got to allogeneic stem cell transplant, whether you did it by HMA-VEN or by CVX351, they tended to have a reasonable good outcome uh, that was fairly similar among the both. The difference is that more patients uh, who received CPX351 were able to get to transplant rather than those who had HMA uh, and venetoclax, uh, potentially highlighting the intensity and the higher response rates uh, with CPX351. You also have to remember uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the folks who had early mortality, the folks who had early toxicity, excluded obviously from those patients uh, who went to allergenic stem cell transplantation. So a caveat of these studies uh, and, 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 and the retrospective nature uh, of them. Um, what can we do further? Can we improve on CPX351? Uh, as we had added uh, venetoclax to the intensive chemotherapy traditional backbones, uh, we have now started to add venetoclax to the CPX351. Uh, so we did a phase one study, phase one, two study in patients with relapsed and refractory acute myeloid leukemia with CPX351 in combination with venetoclax. We did actually dose de-escalation because we found that there was prolonged myelosuppression with CPX351 by itself, but in addition to, with the addition of venetoclax, really significant bone marrow ablation uh, and, and prolonged myelosuppression. So we dropped the dose of venetoclax, target dose now, 300 instead of 400, and given only for seven days on days two through eight. And so that became our uh, target dose. And, um, uh, and you can see here, uh, just briefly, we presented recently in the front line, a response rate 80%. Most of these patients had secondary uh, or high-risk acute myeloid leukemia, and the relapse refractory setting 54% of our response rate. But what's important is if you look at, uh, on the post-treatment stem cell transplant, 11 out of the 12 patients who achieved a, a response were able to go to allergenic stem cell transplant. So in the relapse setting, a way to get patients to allergenic stem cell transplant. Also ongoing is the VFAST study, which has multiple arms, sort of a basket study looking at CPS351 in combination. Uh, and then there is a VEN combination here with a response rate around 67% in the front line. Uh, and Dr. Erbo will discuss uh, some of the other targeted therapies uh, in, in his talk. And finally, um, just looping back uh, to the, 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 the comparison and, and kind of highlighting some of the abstracts here at the current ASH, 
is an update by the Moffitt group of those patients who had either CPX351 uh, versus uh, Venetoclax HMA in a retrospective review uh, to see how they did. And you can see uh, in the table right off the bat the headline being that more patients uh, in the CPX351 arm were able to proceed to allogeneic stem cell transplant and as a result had uh, an overall survival of 71% um, uh, compared to the HMA, which is very, very similar. Again, those people who had um, uh, stem cell transplant. What's very interesting also is the, the non-relapse mortality, although not significant, uh, higher in those patients who had CPX351. So caveat and something that you will incorporate as you see your patients and, and kind of evaluate them for risk of early mortality. All right, so coming back to our case and kind of wrapping things up in a, in a, in a, in a fashion. So 70-year-old guy, He's relatively fit. He's probably had MDS for a little while, unrecognized, maybe CMML, and now has acute myeloid leukemia with a complex karyotype, no P53, secondary type mutations. You know, is this a candidate in my mind for CLIA and venetoclax? Probably not, probably too intensive. We, we apply the model uh, to this patient. His risk of early mortality with intensive chemotherapy around 25% given his age, his, his, um, um, his karyotype. Uh, but he was very motivated. We talked about cladribine lotus venetoclax on a clinical trial. He said, look, you know, I understand, but that seems too low intensity for me. We, help, you know, kind of, we kind of helped him participate in, in, the, in the discussion. He's like, that's a clinical trial. We want to do something more standard. Where's their data where I can get to transplant because that's what I want to do. And so he's very motivated. We talked about CPX351. We talked about the data post-transplant. Uh, and this patient uh, went on to CPX351 as initial therapy. Uh, one of the important points, again, with CPX351 is that there is more prolonged cytopenia, both neutropenia and thrombocytopenia, with the use of CPX351 in patients. Um, and so that's something that you'll need to monitor, um, uh, consider use of uh, prophylactic uh, antibiotic therapy. We use triple, including antifungal, antiviral, and antibiotics in these patients. Uh, but that's something you need to watch for and certainly you know, consult the allogeneic stem cell transplant folks uh, to move this patient to transplant uh, fairly soon. So I'll pause there. I will share a brief secret. The secret is that on the way over here in the car, we happen to have been in the car together. And um, I asked the question that how are we supposed to deal with MD Anderson giving us all of these sort of tempting data and combinations, and what, what do we do if we don't happen to live um, in Houston? Note to self, I will never move to Houston. <laughs> but what do we actually do with this? And the audience, actually, um, there are some fantastic questions that I want to address right now because I think you guys are responding in the same way, that this looks great. This looks great, and the audience question is, can, can we just replace this? Can we replace um, a, an intensified venetoclax-based um, induction with adding it to intensive chemotherapy for young patients? And I'm not gonna ask you, I'm gonna ask Harry. All right, Harry. Well, I don't think we're really ready to do that. I, I think um, for this population of patients that we were talking about, uh, AML, MR, uh, MR, or therapy-related, there's clearly survival data with CPX351 as an induction and consolidation getting the transplant. And as um, we heard, we don't know why that is, but it's there. On the other hand, we know that we can get patients to transplant with less intensive therapy, and all roads lead to transplant. We, we agree that at this point, we're gonna need to transplant that patient. We don't know that um, using a less intensive therapy will give you the same quality of remission, and when it will. I like to think of CPX351 as time-limited therapy as opposed to HMA-VEN, where it was meant to go on forever until toxicity or, or relapse, and 
the depth of those remissions, as Keith Pratt has published for the group, gets uh, the more, pa more patients get into an MRD negative remission over time. So then it brings up the question, well, do you transplant them after one cycle, after four cycles, after seven cycles of MHMAVEN? So I, I would use an, an intensive therapy. I think the only way to really settle this, because it's an important question, is in a randomized clinical trial comparing intensive to less intensive therapies with or without uh, venetoclax. And actually, SWAG is launching that trial in the Milomatch um, platform uh, in the first quarter of 2023. Right, so the survival of the fittest, as it's being called, yeah. trial of looking at an intensive therapy versus an HMA VEN, though, doesn't answer the question. And that trial, everybody should accrue to that trial. We need to know that answer. But it doesn't answer the question of if you're doing an intensive regimen, do you throw venetoclax on top of that? So quickly, tell the world before everybody runs out and does this. Last time I checked, an awful lot of people end up in the ICU if you do the intensified high-dose based regimens with venetoclax. Just to answer some of the audience questions here, can you tell us now, based on what we know now, who should get out of the gate the super-intensified, if you will, or venetoclax plus intermediate-dose um, ARAC-based regimens that you guys are using? And can you just clarify the VEN dosing to make sure that nobody is doing that for 28 days? Absolutely. So first, Gail, we'd love to have you in Houston. I think you'd really you know, spice up our faculty <laughs> meetings a bit. But, uh, <laughs> the bad so. hair day every day. <laughs> All right. So I think the first thing, the first point is that you know, these regimens, these intensive chemotherapy with venetoclax regimens, they are intense, and they're called out for a reason. Uh, they lead to significant uh, myelosuppression, deep myelosuppression, uh, to the point where people are getting higher rates of febrile neutropenia. Not everyone ends up in the ICU, as Gail's saying. There is maybe a slightly higher rate of bacteremia that we see. Well, you'll see that they're, they're, we're actually publishing a lot of the, or we're presenting a lot of the toxicity data at this ASH. We'll talk about bacteremias, pneumonias, some soft tissue infections. But these patients are monitored carefully. They're in the hospital for 30 days at MD Anderson. Um, uh, they're given triple antibody prophylaxis from day one, so antifungal, uh, mold-covering antifungal, broad-spectrum fluoroquinolone, and, and antiviral, usually Valtrex. I think the patients that we choose are those younger fit patients uh, who have an opportunity to potentially get higher rates of MRD negativity where we want to get them and make sure they achieve remission and get to transplant. And as you saw from the data, those patients who have intermediate adverse risk are those people we prioritize, except those patients who have a very complex monosomal karyotype with 17P deletion and P53, where we know, and we have the outcomes that are not they weren't listed here, but their response rates are lower and their relapse rate is much higher. Even though they achieve remission or marrow remission or CRI, their relapse rate is still higher. And so those patients who are intermediate adverse, we are prioritizing this. Should the whole world do this? I'm not sure that's, that's the case yet. I think that uh, we need to sort of, you know, look at a randomized trial looking at chemotherapy plus or minus venetoclax to make sure that we are targeting the right population. Uh, the other thing we point out is that we do a lot of tweaks. We, we add GCSF, we add growth factors at the end of chemotherapy, we add antibiotics, we make sure they're in the hospital, um, negative or positive pressure uh, rooms. There are a lot of tweaks that we do to, to be able to deliver this therapy. In terms of the dosing, it's only seven days of venetoclax, okay? So in CLIA, we start on day two, we go through day eight. Why do we start on day two? People sometimes come with high white counts. The first day of cladrine, idorubus, and ERC tends to knock the white count down. By the time we get to day two, we have less TLS when we add the venetoclax. So days two through eight, um, we don't give the 21 days or 28 days of venetoclax, uh, and we, we, we watch them very carefully. So your points are all great. I think, you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a place that's controlled, you can certainly do this. As we kind of use this regimen and democratize it, we really need to make sure that we have the guidelines out there of how to, how to use this regimen and where. 
Can you give us the inside scoop? How is it that, um, <coughs> so MD Anderson has not always been a huge fan of cladribine. How is it that cladribine, and you guys hate low-dose RSC, how did cladribine and yeah. low-dose RSC and venetoclax emerge from, a, from azacitidine and venetoclax? So, yeah, great question. So many years ago, when we just had HMA or DAC and AZA, we were kept treating patients, response rates were 20, you know, 25, 30% in these older. We, didn't, we wanted to move beyond that. Actually, we, li we loved cladribine. Cladribine actually was initially developed uh, um, by some people at Anderson, by Kornblau and Gandhi, when they did a small phase two study, phase one study in, in refractory patients, there was activity. When you combine cladribine and ARC, there seems to be synergy in, in acute myeloquimus. So you don't need to give three grams per meter square of cytarabine. You can actually drop it to 1.5 gram and still get the same cytotoxicity in the AML blast. And so we said, is there a regimen that we can use lotus ARC? Well, maybe we can add cladribine to it to increase the intracellular concentration of it. And that gave birth to that regimen in, 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 in the setting of necessity when we didn't want to use HMAs in older patients. And that's our backbone for a while, and that's why we added venetoclax. I actually like cladribine a lot, and I'm working with, Cornell is working with the Polish group on redoing the cladribine-based induction. There's some data on that, actually, at this meeting, which you can look at. Okay, a couple of other points before we move on. I'm going to answer a couple of these myself, and you guys jump in. But I want to just uh, talk, so this question I think is important, realistically, awaiting molecular mutations. Can, any advice on how to speed up the process when pace, uh, placing patients in different treatment categories that offer specific molecular targets? And there's a second question that says, do you get next generation data, uh, data before starting induction? So I just want to toss that for one second because I think that the world is doing better. So sequencing data come back faster, but not fast enough, and I just want to encourage encourage everybody to talk to whichever labs you're using about things like rapid fish panels, which sometimes in some centers come back a lot faster than cytogenetics. You can sometimes get that quick look at, do you have 23 problems on chromosomes, even if you don't know exactly what they are, what does it look like? Fish testing is sometimes a lot faster. And the other thing that is emerging are actually um, fusion panels that sometimes come back faster, as well as PCRs for FLT3 and PM1 and IDH12, which for many institutions and in many commercial labs are currently being prioritized for that 24-48 hour kind of turnaround. So I would say, I think the answer is that you do not need to be waiting for sequencing. Is, that, is anybody waiting for NGS? Not, not in Houston, but are you waiting for sequencing? I, to I start? agree with the panel that you just said. I think there are some situations where you can wait for that information. The patient's been put in the hospital, they're 70 <coughs> years old, fit, unfit, you don't know. You're trying to decide on therapy, but they were landed in the hospital because they went to the emergency room with a fever. You treat their fever, you treat their neutropenia, send them home. They don't, they're not ready for a one-month stay in the hospital. Send them home, wait for the NGS to come back and give them a full explanation of the disease and then your options. So not always, but sometimes. Yeah, completely agree with both your points. I think we do tend to wait exactly what Harry said. If a person does come in with proliferative disease, we give them a dose or two of cytarabine, get them cytoreduced, hydrea, hold them, we wait for the NGS to come back. Great point about the fish, about the, the, these fusion panels. You can get MLL rearrangements, which rearrangement it is. You can get FLT3 back, usually quicker and quicker these days. One quick and dirty way, and this was actually led by Joe Curry at our group when he was there as a pathologist and published in blood, to get a P53 status, you can actually do immunohistochemistry yep. on the blast counts. And if they're strongly positive IHC, 
it strongly correlates with P53 inactivation, whether it be a mutation or 17P, and we can get that back within 36 hours of actually getting the blood. So a lot of these things are kind of clues to kind of give you an idea of, hey, this is gonna be a complex, difficult patient or an easier to treat patient. The, other, the only other comment I would make briefly is that to, you've gotta actually dig into the variant allele frequencies that are coming back on the mutation um, uh, on your reports because you do wanna dig into what might be germline, what might not be germline. Is that gonna be a consideration potentially for family members? We've had an epidemic, it seems, of RUNCS patients coming in with that 49% or 51% VAF and then all of a sudden you find out that there are 15 family members with thrombocytopenia, so worth looking at. And then I think the um, last question that I'm gonna do before going on um, is uh, the, the transplant question on, okay, so we have not proved in this presentation or in any other one that CPX and HMAVEN are the same regimen, right? But there are provocative data here suggesting that there's more than one way to slice and dice getting somebody into a transplant. So. There are some transplanters in the room, one in particular that I know very well, who wants to know, all right, well, how are we deciding, is there anything kind of front-loading the situation for patients who are you know are on deck for a transplant? How might you select right out of the gate which one of these you're going to, uh, you're going to uh, pick since it looks like the survival curves are coming out pretty close? Yeah, I think to me, um, uh, I, I look at what is their chance of having uh, an event, an early mortality event or, or, a mor or a morbidity event. If that person is someone I think that can touch, so the goal, as like you said, is to get to transplant. Uh, sure, HMA event can get them to transplant. CPX, 350 water intensive chemotherapy may have a higher rate of getting them to transplant. And so obviously I would lean to that unless the patient has something where I fear that you know, this is gonna be too intensive for them or there's a comorbidity that limits the amount of chemotherapy that I'm gonna give to them and then I may go lower intensity. But again, the goal is to get to that. In my mind, I think there are higher rates uh, of getting to transplant with uh, more intensive approaches. And everybody should look for the follow-up real-world data that you have five years of post-transplant data for um, intensive regimens and for CPX in particular, since that was what was compared. The HMA-VEN data, I think, were originally starting out for older patients who weren't going, and the label says they're not going to transplant, and yet, oops, they are. So we, we don't actually have that five-year data yet. Harry, I'm gonna toss to you to take us into the next case. Um, okay, so we're going to now talk about FLT3 mutated disease, and we're going to start with um, a case. And this is a patient I saw when I was on service last uh, at the end of November. Uh, so it's a real case. I only changed one thing. You're right, Gail. I made his age just a little bit older. But he was 64, but I made him 68, the median age of AML. So it's George, 68-year-old man, well-controlled hypertension, chronic back pain, excellent functional status, a month ago, not now, he comes in with a performance status of four with fatigue, dyspnea, and hypoxia, and encephalopathy. He's sedated. He can't even stay awake during a medical interview about his leukemia. His white counts 356,000. His hemoglobin is 5.6. His platelets are 24,000. His white cell differential is 95% glass. I do learn very quickly that um, his PCR is positive for the FLT3 ITD mutation with a variant allelic ratio of 1.6. The AML fish panel, which we get rapid turnaround, is negative for core binding factor changes, but also complex changes, including 5 and 7. So the way we approach him uh, is, of course, this was Friday night at 5 o'clock when he came in. Uh, we uh, do a, a cytoreduction. I know at MD Anderson they give a nice dose of cytarabine. 
I still use hydroxyurea. I still find it effective. Um, he undergoes leukapheresis. Um, I do not do a bone marrow biopsy. All of those blasts are in the blood. Um, you might get, you know, variant chromosome morphology on the peripheral blood than the marrow, but, but uh, it's not worth doing the bone marrow in this case. Uh, so I do it all on peripheral blood, make the diagnosis, and later, much later after we start therapy, the myeloid gene panel comes back showing he has only three mutations. They flip through the ITD, the MPM1, and the DNA methyltransferase 3A. And I actually brought this as a true consult because look at who I'm standing next to. So I'm going to ask these two later what they would do, but we have to start with, well, what's the data? Okay, so a little background on FLT3. FLT3 is an important transmembrane molecule that is critical to signaling and normal myeloid development. Um, it is associated with increased downstream signaling to promote proliferation and survival. As we know, this is one of the three most common mutations in AML, along with the two that this man has, DNA methyltransferase 3A and MPM1. Most of them are internal tandem duplications associated with a poor prognosis due to an increased risk of relapse, and about 5 to 10 percent have a FLT3-TKD, or tyrosine kinase domain mutation, where the effect on prognosis is less clear. For example, in this data uh, set from uh, the Germans of over 600 patients, um, they looked at the impact of single gene mutations on overall survival. And down lower, you see the FLT3-ITD, where it's associated with a worse survival. But the FLT3-TKD, if anything, was actually associated with a better survival. And probably a large reason for this are the co-mutations that are occurring um, um, with these uh, different uh, mutations. But FLT3-TKD and ITD are different beasts. We have felt for a long time, or at least the, the Europeans have felt for a long time, that the amount of the FLT3-ITD is important. So this is important data from the Germans, uh, published uh, by uh, Richard Schlenk, showing that the prognosis is particularly poor in AML patients with high FLT3-ITD to wild-type ratio, showing lower response rates, higher risk, risk of resistant disease, and lower uh, median overall and event-free survival. The problem with this approach is standardization of the FLT3 assay and agreement on what are the appropriate cutoffs, and at the end of the day, most people feel, including now the ELN, that just having a FLT3 ITD just makes you intermediate risk. But as I mentioned before, it may have a lot to do with the co-mutation. So in this patient, this patient also has an MPM1 and a DNA methyltransferase 3A mutation. And Ellie Papa Emanuel, in her um, analysis of over 1,500 patient samples, had enough patients to show that the impact of the FLT3 ITD was most pronounced in the patients with MPM1 and uh, DNMT3A. I would not call our patient intermediate risk based on her analysis of that genotype with a 20% survival. So the current standard of care for a patient who is fit for intensive chemotherapy um, is to uh, give standard 7 and 3, followed by high-dose cytarabine, with a two-week course of the first-generation type 1 FLT3 inhibitor, Midastorin. This is based on the results of the RATIFY trial, uh, led by the Alliance and, and Rich Stone, and uh, accomplished as an international study that showed an improvement in overall survival at four years. More patients were alive on the mitostorin arm than the placebo arm. And the benefit was most pronounced in patients who went on to transplant in first remission. 
We don't really know why that is because samples weren't collected to show that we maybe have a, a deeper um, remission, very much like the CPX351 study, but that is the case, that transplant um, was associated, um, was associated with better survival there. But in subset analyses, it turned out that FLT3-TKD mutation was actually um, more likely to be, had a, a, had a lower hazard ratio for survival than the ITD patients. Now, there are wide confidence intervals, and you can't make definite conclusions, but it at least raises the point, is mitostorin the right drug for patients with the worst prognosis disease, those with an ITD mutation? And there are other subset analyses which are hidden in the supplement of the Ratify paper in New England Journal, which I think are really impressive. For example, no one talks about how women had a hazard ratio of one with mitostorm versus placebo, whereas men had a very significant hazard ratio for improvement with mitostorm. Statistical fluke, maybe, or hypothesis generating for why there, there might be a difference. We don't know. And we have no data in old, no randomized data, I should say, in older patients over the age of 60. The ratified trial was done in younger patients. We do have this uh, historical um, comparison done by the Germans showing improvement in event-free survival for patients who received mitostorin in a more current regimen than um, uh, previously, but no randomized data in this uh, age group. And there was a signal from this study that maybe um, there's a problem with the maintenance phase. I'm going to show you here that 62%, almost two-thirds of patients, had to stop mitostorin early and the most common reason, mitostorin toxicity. As you heard uh, uh, Taupin uh, talk about the VFAST study, there was an arm in the study for patients with flithrin mutated AML. It's important to recognize that these weren't patients in the labeled indication for CPX351. These were all patients, not just MRC or therapy related. Uh, but they were eligible for this arm of the study if they had a FLT3 ITD or TKD mutation, and what you could see with the addition of venetoclax, again, in an abbreviated uh, course, you could see uh, very high response rates, uh, including uh, MRD negativity. So it is feasible to add venetoclax to CPX351. Uh, we are proposing this as another arm in the, the SWOG study, looking at what's the best uh, treatment for high-risk uh, younger patients with AML, the combination with venetoclax. Do you mean venetoclax? Hmm? I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yours, yours were included, right. not this one. Thank okay. you. Yeah, I digress to his. Um, so no, we're not including um, uh, the mitostorin uh, combination. Okay, so the real question here is, is there a role for other FLT3 inhibitors? So what are those other FLT3 inhibitors? As I mentioned, mitostorin is a first-generation <clears throat> Uh, type 1 inhibitor, which means it inhibits both FLT3 ITD and TKD mutations. Type 2 inhibitors bind to the inactive conformation of an enzyme. And because the TKD mutations folds um, FLT3 immediately into the active conformation, a type 2 inhibitor, such as, um, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, quizartinib or panatinib, does not have activity against the TKD, just the ITD. Second-generation drugs have been more rationally designed to be more specific and more potent uh, against FLT3. 
So we have several that have um, gone into randomized clinical trials uh, for uh, patients with AML with FLT3 mutation. The first one to read out uh, is the data from the Quantum First study, which I presented at EHA in June. In this study, patients, uh, adult patients up to the age of 75, not 60, 75 were included. 40% of our patients were over the age of 60. And they had to have a FLT3 ITD alone, no TKD mutation. So read for that a higher risk group of patients. They were able to start standard 7 and 3 before actually um, being randomized on the trial, which we did because we noticed that many patients with FLT3 mutated AML come in very sick, like this man, and may die before that um, you actually get to see the impact of the drug that's being started on day eight. So we actually did the randomization at day seven um, of adding two weeks of uh, quizartinib versus placebo, high dose RSC uh, for up to four cycles, three grams per meter squared in younger, 1.5 grams per meter squared in older patients um, uh, with two weeks of uh, quizartinib. They could, of course, according to a physician and patient preference, undergo allogeneic transplant, and then a continuation phase of up to three years because the uh, steering committee felt that relapse um, was still a possibility in FLT3 mutated patients longer than a year in which the mitostorm was given. So we extended it for three years uh, for that reason. And if the patient went on to allo, they can continue the randomization of uh, quizartinib versus placebo um, afterwards. And the primary endpoint of the study um, was um, survival. And you can see on this next slide that there was an improvement in overall survival with an improvement in median survival from uh, 15 months up to 32 months. Um, but and it looks really good in terms of the hazard ratio, 0.776, with a p-value of 0.324, two-sided uh, p-value, log-ranked. Um, so statistically significant with improvement in overall survival that translates into a 22% reduction in the risk of, of death. And if all you remember are the sound bites from the Ratify trial, you will come away from this saying, that's no different. But it is different. So yes, the reduction in the risk of death was exactly the same in the Ratify trial, but remember those were younger patients with both ITD and TKD um, mutations. And as we roll out the data on the subsets, you will see the benefit is there in the younger patients, as well as the older patients, but mostly in the younger patients. So why did we see an improvement in survival? Well, we correlated that improvement in survival with a um, lower risk of uh, relapse. The duration, the cumulative incidence of relapse was only 31% uh, uh, at two years. We correlated it with longer duration of remission, three times longer with uh, quizartinib than placebo. Um, and here in this analysis, we also uh, looked at uh, an MRD analysis. Now, we didn't do the uh, usual flow-based um, central flow-based um, uh, multicolor flow cytometry uh, MRD assessment, we used a uh, FLT3 ITD-specific PCR MRD assay to analyze for MRD with a cut point of uh, 10 to the minus 4. And this is the first prospective trial with, with prospectively collected data that shows the impact of being MRD positive um, or uh, negative. So that's uh, shown in the blue and green curves over here, regardless of therapy. If the patient was, where, where to go? There. If the patient was MRD negative, they did better than if they were MRD um, positive. 
We also show then the quizartinib group, there was a statistically significant um, uh, decrease in the um, level of MRD. It was a threefold lower MRD uh, level uh, to 0.01. Uh, from 0.03 with the placebo, and more patients were MRD undetectable. Statistically sound, clinically, eh, you know, you're looking at this and saying, is that those, those things, that's a lot of dots that seem to line up, um, and does this really explain <coughs> it? But I would argue that I am actually surprised at this kind of result, because let's face it, the difference between these two patient populations is two weeks just two weeks of a drug, and maybe this is too early a look to see what's happening. Most patients who go on to transplant are not going on to transplant after just one induction. They're going on to transplant after one, two, or even three cycles of hydocytaramine with another two weeks of uh, quizartinib or placebo. So this may be too early a look, but still at this early time point, we see the benefit of quizartinib. Richard, so Mark Levis is going to be presenting that for, um, uh, for us um, at uh, this ASH uh, Congress. Uh, Richard Schlenk is showing uh, the uh, uh, transplant data and patients who underwent allotransplant transplanted CR1. There was longer survival observed in those treated with quizartinib than placebo. But even irrespective of transplant performed in CR1, quizartinib and standard induction consolidation, and then continued for up to three years as a single agent improved survival over placebo in these patients up to the age of 75 with newly diagnosed FLT3 ITD positive AML. Now we've added a drug, and this drug clearly has the uh, myelosuppression. Um, and as you might expect, by adding myelosuppression, you are going to see longer time to count recovery, a neutrophil recovery. And I'm concerned that this does actually translate into a numerically higher number of deaths at 30 days and 60 days, as you can see there. So in this slide that, you know, we always conclude that the toxicity was manageable, and that's because the doctors are managing it and the patients are dealing with it. So we say, yes, it's manageable, and there are no new safety signals, but we have added and a myelosuppressive drug to this regimen. And I think as the data comes out, we will see what I would expect to see, that the impact of that myelosuppression is going to be seen more in patients who are older. And remember, 40% of our patients were older. Mitostorin, on, based on the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, quizartinib, based on the initial phase uh, one studies, um, got a, a very um, bad rep for uh, causing QT prolongation. Uh, you have to know that those phase one studies push the doses very, very high. In this study, um, using the, the recommended uh, phase two uh, dose, the grade three QT prolongation was only 2% versus 0.7% with placebo. Now, other um, second generation FLT3 inhibitors are being tested, and the others, cronolinib and gilteritinib, are type 1 inhibitors. So both of these studies are going to be including ITD and TKD patients, making comparisons cross studies difficult. This is data that's been presented by Eunice Wang and is informing a large uh, phase 3 study now of using cronolinib with intensive chemotherapy in a very similar design um, uh, with uh, two weeks after induction, uh, consolidation, and as a maintenance. And um, what um, she showed is that in a similar age group, a, also a similar rate 
of uh, uh, cumulative incidents of relapse of about uh, 30, 33%, very similar to what we reported in the quantum first study. But if you look at the younger patients, again, there's a signal here that the younger patients are the ones who derive more benefit. And if you look at survival, the survival of the older patients was worse. Why? We don't know yet. Uh, could it be because of the toxicity of adding crinolinib, which also brings some myelosuppression, or um, is it the biology of the disease or the biology of the patients? We need more data um, there. Giltaritinib has been tested in a phase 1b study showing a very high rate of uh, response, 80, about 80%. I always point out that about half of those responses in the phase 1b were um, uh, CRI, not true uh, CR, but nevertheless very active. And now there are several uh, phase three, two phase 3 studies looking at giltaritinib versus mitostorin in uh, first-line patients. There's the precog study where the primary endpoint is MRD-negative complete remission after just the induction. Um, and uh, the second is a, um, a European study of um, giltaritinib versus mitostorin um, powered for overall survival. And the panatinib, uh, I'm sorry, the crinolinib study also is in phase three um, on there. So with, I'll get back to then intensive chemotherapy, but then the question is, well, what if the patient isn't fit? You, you just look at them and you know they fit Ferrara criteria and you are not going to give them intensive chemotherapy. Um, what is the data with less intensive therapy? And outside of Houston, no, no disrespect meant, I mean, the standard of care has become in these patients HMA and venetoclax. So how do patients with a FLT3 mutation fare with HMA venetoclax? And you can see the response rates on, on the left-hand side are very high, 65, 70%, depending on you know, which definition of response you use. But in terms of the, um, the overall survival for the FLT3 ITD and panel C, there was no difference in median overall survival. And that's that's AZA alone versus AZA with venetoclax. Well, maybe if we add a FLT3 inhibitor, we're going to do better than just AZA alone. But in this study, that was an unblinded comparison of giltaritinib with AZA versus AZA alone, no placebo. There was a higher response rate, which I'm not showing you, as you might expect with the giltaritinib combination. But again, no difference in overall survival. The authors did show at one of the congresses that in the patient with a FLT3 ITD with a high allelic ratio, there may have been a benefit, but otherwise a negative study. So where do we go from there? Well, obviously, we, we go in the same direction that MD Anderson has, has led us, um, and just makes sense, combinations of therapies. And I'm, I'm showing you this data to support the use of giltaritinib and venetoclax as a very active combination of a FLT3 inhibitor with venetoclax. This is in the relapse refractory population, standard doses of giltaritinib, 120 a day for, for um, uh, 120 uh, every day, and venetoclax up to 400 milligrams every day. And you see an incredibly high um, modified complete remission rate composite. A lot of words instead of CR there. And that's because it includes a lot of different response criteria. Now, overall, when you compare that definition, MCRC, in this study to the ADMIRAL trial, it's clearly higher than what was seen in the ADMIRAL trial, where it was only 52% with single-agent giltaritinib. But I want to point out that 50%, or more than half of these responses, were morphologic leukemia-free state. 
So that might be a great result if you want to get to the patient to the transplant, which should be a, a goal for our patient with FLT3 mutated disease. But for an older patient, you, you, that's not going to transplant. You want count recovery. And if you actually really be hard about this and say, I just want to know about CRs, the CR rate was actually lower with this. It was only 7% versus 20% in the ADMIRAL trial. And I think that's because of the myelosuppression that we see. And that's really some of the challenge with this regimen is learning how to dose venetoclax and gilteritinib. It is still um, a work in progress, I would say. And so now I'm go I am going to uh, show data from MD Anderson because I, I think it's important and it really indicates, you know, where we are going. You know, they looked at and have published their experience using doublets of a FLT3 inhibitor, either first gen or second generation, with low intensity um, chemotherapy, and they showed you know, CRC rates of 70%. Um, and then, but the response rates. Um, CR, CRI, PCR um, negativity, and, and multicolor flow cytometry, MRD negative, were clearly much higher with triplets of HMA um, uh, FLT3 inhibitor with the addition of venetoclax, as you can see here. Now, the follow-up is very short, obviously, in the blue curve, but encouraging that maybe we're going to be actually getting somewhere um, with the um, addition of venetoclax to a FLT3 inhibitor in HMA. And then finally being presented at uh, this year's um, uh, ASH uh, Symposium, uh, this data from uh, MD Anderson being presented by um, uh, uh, Short, Dr. Short, this triplet combination of azacitidine, venetoclax, and gilteritinib is highly active. I'm just going to show you the 21 patients with newly diagnosed AML because that's what we're talking about. The CR, CR rate was 95%, 20 out of 21 with 80% achieving flow-based um, MRD negativity and 90% cleared the FLT3 mutation. Um, uh, I didn't read the details of the abstract, so I'm not sure by what method they, they determined that. But a median follow-up of 10 months and the six-month overall survival is 95%. So early data, but suggesting triplets might be better than doublets here. So let's get back to this case. Because All right, I, I I'm going to pause you for one second yes. before we do the case, um, just because I want to. We have. Um, I want to make sure that there are a couple of questions that we get to really quick before we actually end with the case. Okay. So one of the questions I'm going to combo two questions from the audience, so which are great ones um, for that are directed to you, which were so since the control arm um, for uh, the quantum first trial wasn't mitostorin, right. and you can answer quickly why that was the case, but since that wasn't the case, do we need, what are we gonna do? Do we need another randomized trial, which you and I will be 103 before we could do a randomized trial to look at chemo for, of uh, mito versus quiz, so what do we do? So the reason for this is that this study started, and I was part of the steering committee, before the results of the Ratify trial even came out and before FDA approval. So we launched Quantum First as an international study in uh, 2016. The steering committee came back together in 2017 after the April approval by the FDA of mitostorin in combination with chemotherapy and asked the question, should we modify this trial? Okay. Um, the steering committee, fortunately, was made up of people not just uh, from the United States, but from the world. 
and we have to stop looking at the treatment of cancer as a U.S. problem. It is an international problem. And other countries did not have mitostorin uh, yet. And so we would have had to provide mitostorin, a drug from a different company, and contract for it as an investigational agent in other countries if we wanted to continue the accrual internationally. And the steering committee was the one that felt that we shouldn't do that. Um, and so we made the decision to continue. And the study actually completed its accrual. And there are still countries, you should know, that don't have mitostorin. So I understand that the standard of care here is the ratified trial based on that, but it is not the standard of care in some countries in the world. So that's why it ended up like this. Okay, my tongue-in-cheek answer to you is when we have these two studies that have the same control arm and differences in the populations, obviously, right? FLT3-ITD and TKD, FLT3-ITD alone, only younger, younger and older. What are we going to do? We're going to do what every statistician tells us not to do and what we tell you not to do, and that is compare them side by side and try to make the best decision. But the good news for this audience is I know that there are a, probably a few marketing people out there. You've got jobs awaiting you because that is really going to be the question. How do you decide between these two drugs? I have my own personal uh, opinion, which we'll get to, um, but uh, we'll see what the world uh, decides. So I definitely wanted you to answer that question. So now we have a four-minute task where we're gonna cover several things. We're gonna go through this case. All of us have to say what we're gonna do, um, but we have to do it all in four minutes because otherwise very bad things happen if we go very, over. The, light, very, the lights go off. Very, very, very quick. Um, he was fit for chemotherapy a month ago. This always begs the question, when do you judge the performance status? Uh, SWOG data shows that performance, patients with poor performance status who are younger, who get intensive chemotherapy, actually have a very good survival. So I had to believe that this patient was going to perk up if we gave him cytoreductive therapy, and he did. So that was important to see. So the current standard of care is 7 plus 3 in mitostorin, and, and that's what he was supposed to get. But of course, the best laid plans, he develops hyperbilirubinemia on day seven, and uh, no one on service wants to give him mitostorin. So we're just going to see what happens. But if I had quizartinib available personally, based on the data that I've seen, I would use quizartinib um, here or another second generation uh, drug. Um, and that's really the next question. Okay, you got quantum first showing this benefit. Are we just going to extrapolate that data to a currently available drug like gilteritinib? I'm sure some people might do that. But whatever we do uh, in terms of the induction, I'm going to strongly recommend transplant in first remission. The question is if he does not end up going to transplant, and there are many reasons why patients with this disease will not go to transplant, what would you do? And according to the ratify trial, I would use um, mitostorin. Would I think about gilteritinib or, or quizartinib if I had it available? Yeah, those are possibilities, but I was gonna turn it back to Gail and say, he has an NPM1 mutation, would you use oral ASA as a maintenance? Yeah, I figure I was going to get that tossed back. So, I mean, look, what this is a really, this is, a, we all have this patient, right? So you can, this is an intermediate risk patient, except we don't like to say intermediate risk because that's what the book says, but the book 
doesn't get it that this patient has a very high chance of relapsing. So the oral azacitidine data looked really good for this type of a patient if he couldn't go on to an allotransplant because his initial maybe rough time in chemotherapy, maybe this is somebody who even though he has a good performance status, he doesn't look so good with chemotherapy and can't get an allo. I think oral azacitidine is actually um, is actually a very real option for, uh, for him. The world doesn't know yet. We're used to giving ongoing FLT3 inhibitors for patients with FLT3 mutations who aren't going on to transplant. We're just used to doing that. So the real question is to put him onto one of the trials which will combine those two agents, which is, yeah. I think, the, exactly. where they, what, what we would all kind of like to do. Yeah. That said, putting people on lots of expensive drugs for indefinite periods of time is a real challenge. Um, but I do think maintenance for a patient like this who's looking not so convincing in intensive chemo is an option. How about you? So what we would do, I guess, on a clinical trial, off-label, we have a, a trial of CLIA and gilteritinib. I think this guy is fit enough for intensive chemotherapy, so I would use intensive chemotherapy and gilteritinib on a clinical trial. Outside of that, and I'm being quick, I think the 7 and 3 quiz is, is a great option. I probably would recommend transplanting this person with post-transplant yeah, FLT3 inhibitor if he can't get transplant for whatever reason something like a, a long-term FLT3 inhibitor with potentially HMA. I'm going to um, take the chair's prerogative and have the last comment, which is that before taking patients on to transplant, and I think you've heard that there is, transplant still does cure people, and there would be a bias to go on to transplant. I think it's very unclear that flogging patients over and over and over again with additional chemotherapy to erase, you know, one times 10 to the minus residual transcripts of something, I don't, I'm not sure that we know that that's the answer, and I think some patients aren't going on to transplant because because of trying to eradicate nothingness, which is probably not a good idea. Food for thought at this meeting, especially considering the plenary data on relapse disease, which certainly suggests that 15 additional cycles of chemotherapy for a relapsed AML patient may not help them. I think we are um, very close to doing our job, which is to end on time. Thank you all very, very much for coming, and we uh, wish you all a wonderful meeting. Thank you. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BMM860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.